What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a cold Sunday morning, very cold Sunday morning, waiting for my coffee to heat up. have not had that dose of caffeine. You freaks, I'm going to be happy to know I've been buying my coffee and making it at home more recently. It's been about three months now. It's been good. I haven't bought coffee in quite a while. Um, yeah, we got a great conversation with Parker Lewis here. Today, quick 45-minute rip. Uh, really wanted to talk to Parker about what's going on in the repo markets in particular. He's not an expert per se, and he'll tell you this in the conversation that we have, but Parker has been a Fed uh, watcher in a past life and has a lot of intimate knowledge about Fed policy uh, in the post-2008 world that we find ourselves in. And uh, this conversation was extremely illuminating, particularly because it starkly highlights the fact that the Fed had no idea that uh, the unwinding of its balance sheet was going to cause this liquidity crunch in the repo markets. Um, I'm not going to rehash what we talked about. You guys are about to listen to the good stuff. Um, So this episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App. Freaks already know all about them. The Cash App is helping us stack sats. It's helping us sell sats. Not that we recommend doing that. You can send sats from the app to a personal wallet and from the personal wallet to the app. And on top of that, have you freaks heard about Cash App investing? They're letting you stack slivers of stocks now. Um, Cash App is now letting you buy stocks. Not only buy stocks, buy partial stocks. Parts of a stock. A sliver of a share, if you will. All right. So when your company's your favorite company stock is a little bit out of your price range. You can buy as little as $1. You can buy as little as $1 of their stock. If something like Apple's trading above $1,000, I don't even know where it is right now. You can just get a little little piece of that, all right? So introducing Cash App Investing. Uh, and the good thing about this, you don't have to wait for the money to hit four or five days for the money to hit your account. Since Cash App is connected to your bank account, uh, there's no waiting for four to five days. It gets directly there. Um and then on top of this, they have their fucking incredible boost program too, all right? And you do your, their boosts are changing. They've been changing a lot recently. I've used the MTA boost to save a dollar on a, a subway card uh, a couple of days ago. Um, I saw they had DoorDash now too, and a couple others. Taco Bell still in there, um, but yeah, use the boost. You can stack Sats. You can uh, stack slivers of shares as well. And, and you should know that brokerage services are. Provided by Cash App Investing, a subsidiary of Square and member SIPC. And as always, when you sign up, use the code StackingSats. That's one word. You're going to get $10. And Cash App is going to send $10 to our very good friends at Owls Lacrosse. Owls Lacrosse. Ooh, ooh, not that creeper, Al. Al's a, a very, very wayward, very, very wayward man. Stay away from him if you ever see him in public. Definitely do not accept any candy from him. Use the code stacking sacks. Download the Cash App today from the App Store or the Google Play Store. All right, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Parker. Parker is somebody who I get uh, a lot of pleasure. That sounded weird. I uh, I <laughs> I have a, a I'm always very intellectually stimulated when engaging in conversations with Parker, particularly around the Fed. This was all Fed speak. We barely talk about Bitcoin or what Unchained is working on in this. This was pure. Fed talk. So for you Fed nerds out there, enjoy. Okay. <laughs> from the cream. What is up, freaks? 
Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a Thursday. It's not Thursday, it's Saturday. Here on a Saturday afternoon for a very special edition of Tales from the Crypt. I'm sitting down with a former guest, a very good friend of the show, Parker Lewis. Parker, welcome back. Marty, it's good to be on. Uh, Given everything that's going on with the Fed, uh, it is the holidays, but it's good to come back on and, and yak about the Fed and I imagine we'll talk a little bit about Bitcoin, but uh, it'll, you know, kind of, a lot has gone on in the last three months in the world of the Fed and, and the repo market. So it'll be helpful to take a break from Bitcoin and just get to the brass tacks. Yeah, well, even while you're sitting here talking about the Fed, you're not getting a break from Bitcoin. There is a taproot uh, workshop going on in the background behind you. You are in a conference room just putting in work as a taproot uh, workshop goes on behind you. Yeah, I'm just here to chaperone to make sure sure that they don't uh, go too nuts. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a beautiful day here in Austin, Texas. Not just because it's 75 degrees and sunny, but uh, just the moon is uh, rallying the troops to to work through a, a taproot um, workshop that Optech has put together. So uh, if there's any noise in the background, apologies in advance. Justin can sometimes uh, get a little animated and loud, but. Uh, we'll do the best we can. So, and, and if I, if I become distracted, it's because he's uh, causing too much commotion in the background. As Justin tends to do. Um, shout out to Justin for leading the taproot uh, workshop. We need more. We need more people learning how to develop on Bitcoin. Um, yes. But the subject matter of today is the Fed, the repo operations. We've been talking about uh, this subject a lot in the bent and on this podcast for the last few weeks, last few months. It's always a big topic. Um, I feel like the issue is sort of pressing at the moment and we need to dive in and get some clarity on what's going on. So let's start in res media a bit here, a little movie term there, or literature term, excuse me. Uh, September, we had the repo spasm in the middle of the month. It was became obvious that there was some uh, liquidity crunch going on. People were wondering what it was in early November. Zero Hedge dropped a piece, surmising that it may have been uh, JP Morgan as they were rotating out of cash and into longer-term bonds. And then uh, last week, the Bank of International Settlements came out and basically pointed at the uh, demand for liquidity and said that it was hedge funds that are levered up and needed funding for their leveraged positions. Um, But we want to go back to the beginning, get to the basics. We'll get back to uh, what's happened in the last three months. But first, we want to understand what QE is and what the hell, um, why these operations are are needed at the moment. So I'll let you take it from here, Parker. You know, I'll, I'll try not to, after every sentence, say, and this is why Bitcoin exists. But um, I think it's safe to assume that with a lot of this discussion, as it relates to QE and as it relates to what's going on presently with, within the repo markets, as well as Fed's response to it, that you can just well assume that, you know, if I'm not saying it or you're not saying it, you, we're both thinking about it. So, yeah, I thought it would be useful to do a little rewind and bring us back, uh, not only to the present future, but, but to the future that, you know, in terms of what happened in, in September, but to, to set a baseline on really what, what QE is, um, because I think it is the backdrop, not just to, to how we've gotten here, but to where we go from here. Um, you know, recognizing that, you know, you know, at the end of the day, what QE is, is the Fed swapping a financial asset uh, to provide more dollars to the system. And, you know, essentially the Fed, you know, back in 2008, um, when things started to get a little bit dicey in the economy, kind of early 2008, leading up to September, 
had cut short-term interest rates to zero, and then and then there was a liquidity crisis, um, and then the Fed began to to put in significantly more reserves and ultimately more liquidity into the system to stop the financial or to quell the, what was the financial system collapsing. And you know, one of the things that I think is often missed, and it will come into this discussion, is that uh, I believe it was December of 2015. So essentially, uh, just giving a, a, a timeline. Uh, Lehman Brothers 2008, you know, essentially beginning of QE1 in you know, the time frame of the fall of, of, of 2008, early 2009. Uh, then QE2 around you know, 2010, 2011, and then QE3, which is often referred to as Q, QE2 infinity or QE infinity um, from, you know, I believe it was 2013 or 2012 to 2014. Then in you know, toward the end of 2015 or, or through the through the back half of 2014 into 2015, the Fed tapered the rate of their asset purchases. And then in December of, of 15, they actually started raising short-term interest rates. And one important thing to note is, and, and um, I think, and, and there may be some debate on this, but for the framing for this discussion, uh, the way that I think about it is that, at least from the supply side, there is nothing that changes interest rates other than uh, increasing or decreasing the supply of dollars. And QE was essentially increasing the supply of dollars. When the Fed began raising short-term interest rates in December of 2015, nothing was changing in terms of the number of, uh, of, of dollars that were actually in the system. So if you went and looked at the factor supplying reserves by the Fed, Essentially, from December 15 to October of 17, the reserves in the system were flat. So the, the Fed was essentially maintaining the size of, it, of its balance sheet. Then, in October 2017, you know, in the months preceding that, the Fed signaled that they were going to begin to unwind uh, QE1, QE2, QE3. Uh, I think anyone that was intimately familiar and even maybe them themselves w would admit that knowing at that time that they would never be able to actually fully unwind QE, and we'll talk about some of the reasons why. But what what then be began happening in October of 2017 was uh, the Fed's, I don't want to say slowly ramped up, but uh, ramped up ultimately to a rate of withdrawing $50 billion a month um, from the system. And, and that's one thing that I think can sometimes be missed on people that when, you know, and again, I'll caveat into Bitcoin for a second just to draw the comparison, but where we, when, where we think about a fixed money supply, it, it's, it's not just um, to cure a problem that exists with inflating the money supply, that there are actually uh, systemic issues that occur both by increasing the money supply and then decreasing the money supply. And so what the Fed began doing in in October of 2017 was draining a massive amount of liquidity out of the system. And, you know, the, something that, that is often missed is, you know, when they, when they add money into the system, you know, when they, when they increase the size of their balance sheet by approximately $4 trillion, I may be off on, you know, rounding by a couple hundred billion, but um, maybe it was 3.6 trillion. When they did that, there's a lot of confusion as to, well, why didn't, you know, why didn't inflation just appear immediately? And, and, and the reason being that 
the, the effects of that are, are generally felt through the credit system over time because the credit system is so much larger than the actual base money supply. When the Fed is doing any QE operations or not QE as they're referring it to it today, um, it's actually increasing the base money supply and that base money supply is then used to support liabilities that exist in the system. And so if we go just back from October of 17, when the, when the Fed started to unwind the balance sheet um, to September 2017, when the repo market broke, um, having the context that, that the, the, the and, and think about this as, um, you know, if there was a chart, you know, with an X and Y axis, debt in the US system-wide has increased from approximately 68 trillion around October of 2017 to 74.5 trillion to September of this year. So, so essentially thinking about that debt is going, you know, up, up into, or at least in terms of change in debt, going up into the right above the y-axis. But then what was happening on the other side in terms of the actual liquidity in, in the system, it was going down in, into the right as a function of the Fed uh, draining liquidity and, and actually affecting a reverse QE operation. And so, you know, kind of thinking about where, where we were then just two years ago to where we are today, liabilities and debt are higher by approximately six and a half trillion, but the Fed had actually reduced liquidity in the system by 700 billion. So they had, they had shrunken their balance sheet from 4.5 trillion to 3.8 trillion, which, you know, is approximately reducing 50, you know, 15% of, of Fed reserves. But the problem becomes worse because the, not all of those dollars exist within the banking system. And, and the way that the banking system works today, the dollars within the banking system can, can service the liabilities that exist within the banking system. And so when you, but then when you actually look at the, the cash on the bank's balance sheets, um, in October of 2017, it was approximately in aggregate 2.4 trillion. And in September of 2019, it was 1.6 trillion. So essentially every dollar that the Fed reduces in its reverse Q or, or was reducing in its reverse QE uh, came out dollar for dollar from the cash that the banks had. But then if you go one level lower and you look at excess reserves, the, the excess reserves in October of 2017 were 2.2 trillion and the excess reserves in September were only 900 billion. So um, when, when, you, when you kind of put that into context, the Fed's reducing um, their balance sheet by 700 billion, but which is 15 and a half percent, but the actual cash from the banks is actually down 34% and the, the actual excess reserves are down 40%. And so all of these liabilities are piling up in the banking system, the banking system and the amount of debt is grown by 6.4 trillion, but the liquidity has been absolutely crushed in the system. Ultimately, it's very predictable what would happen. Uh, there was already too much debt and too few dollars in the system. And then, again, it was difficult to predict the timeline of what, when the, the repo market would break or whether the repo, well, repo market would break. But the, the easy thing to predict was that some market would break. You can't keep stacking on more and more liabilities all while you're taking $50 billion a month out of the economy. And so I did want us to kind of set that backdrop. I know that was a little bit of a, a long-winded um, 
intro to, to set this discussion up, but it's important to, to have that context as people think about what happened in September and then I think what will happen from here. Yeah, no, and I'll give you some time to breathe and um, digest. <laughs> it's 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 incredible how succinct you you explain everything though. I was you freaks couldn't see it, but I'm sitting here uh, doe eyed, like foot, drilled in on this explanation because it's so clear. So basically, what we're what we're witnessing is. Uh, the way I like to think about this stuff is all about flows. Like I literally like to think about it like a tide and water and, and, and water flowing through a system. Um, and so what we're, what you just described is what we're witnessing is the tide going out and the, the repo spasm that we saw in September was the fish uh, sort of flailing on the, the sand that, that does not have water over it anymore. We're seeing who is over levered and who, who is not collateralized properly in the system. And, I think what you're trying to get at is it may not be possible to be properly collateralized in the system without debt uh, increasing into the future. So I think uh, diving into more specifics is something you you mentioned um, talking about the the excess reserves, and that's really uh, something that I think we should hone in on, right? Because that's what the federal the federal funds rate. Uh, revolves around right is those excess reserves that's the, that's the rate on what there's they are trading at so let's try to understand what the repo market is let's focus in on the repo market and how this xf excess reserve rate sort of dictates everything yeah and and you know one it's it's, it's very difficult just by the, the construct to, to know exactly but to to at least highlight you know essentially some background and you know there are others that are you know, certainly more of experts as it relates to the inner workings of the repo market, but understanding it at a high level, uh, you know, not only in terms of what happened in September, but also just in, just in terms, of, terms of how a repo transaction works to, to at least lay that, that baseline for people. So in September, the overnight repo rate was around 3%, and then overnight it increased to or spiked over 10%. So the, the rate at which those that were borrowing in that market, you know, more than tripled overnight. And, and in the repo market, I don't know precisely how large it is, but it's a massive, um, it's a massive funding market. And essentially what happens in the repo market is that um, an asset, whether it be, you know, thinking about it as a, as a treasury, uh, a treasury is essentially sold um, and, and cash is, is, is on the other side of that transaction. So some, one party sells a, sells a treasury, the other party receives the cash, but there's a repurchase obligation. And if that repurchase obligation, you know, if the, if the cash is not repaid for the treasury, then the, um, that the individual that owns or the, the, the counterparty that owns the treasury can go in the market to sell them to, to get the reserves. And, uh, one of the theories as to what, what happened that caused this, spike in the repo market, which again, you know, it's relevant, but it, but, and we'll ultimately get to why, you know, the who and why are, are less relevant. The most relevant piece is that the market broke um, and that the, that the Fed didn't know it was going to break. Um, but, you know, essentially what appears to have happened was that, you know, a party that was a large funder on the supply side to that market left the market. 
or left the, you know, and not necessarily over, you know, overnight, but left over time. And then when there wasn't liquidity to satisfy the demand, everyone figured it out all at once. And that, I think that is something too, just to highlight, which, which is that when we talk um, about, and, and not to say that the Fed necessarily thinks about it this way, but, but oftentimes when it's summarized, and even when I just summarized it before, and I, I talk about, you know, how the, the excess reserves were, were decreased, you know, from 2.2 trillion in October 2017 to 900 billion in, um, in, in September of 19. It, it, I have to go back and check. It may, be, it may be a decrease of 900 billion, so it may be 1.3 trillion, but the point being that, um, that markets are ultimately fragmented. Um, and especially, you know, thinking about, you know, the inner workings and the plumbing of the system, um, just because there are 900 billion or what, maybe it's 1.3 trillion of, of excess reserves, that those, those excess reserves are not, you know, and the counterparties that lend in the repo markets, you know, the, everyone's not lending to every different market. And so, the, the, you know, what seems to have happened is, that the, that the large counterparties that were, you know, there are still a massive amount of excess reserves, but the counterparties that were providing that supply to those markets left, and they can't easily be replaced by someone else that's traditionally lending or a bank that's lending in another market. And that, you know, what, what essentially happened from there after the, the Fed, um, or sorry, after the repo market, in, in my terms, broke, which, which I believe it did, um, you know, I think that a number of people are paying attention to it. It's, it's a little bit confounding that, that more people aren't and that, you know, there's this, on either side, there's this view that the Fed is in control. Um, but if the Fed understood that this was happening, why would they have been draining liquidity, you know, why would they have been draining liquidity 50 billion a month? Think about how much money 700 billion is. So they had, they had already, they had already stopped, um, draining money at this point when it broke and they had already signaled that they were planning to do something but they also had no idea that you know i don't know if the date was september 15th or september 16th was going to happen but you know when it did then the fed had to immediately i think they did it within 24 hours they came back in by providing it did it over the weekend right I don't know if it was over I the weekend or over i think it happened like a friday night or something like that if i remember correctly I can't, we'd have to check the dates. It was, it was either, you know, it happened on Thursday night. and they, Or it was Sunday, it was Sunday into Monday. It was Sunday into Monday. That's what it was. Yeah. Um, but, but just thinking about how phenomenal that fact is, and, and I don't remember the initial amount, but we can talk a little bit about the consequence. All right. And in case you freaks missed it, the fact is that the Fed is an institution which we we think has, uh, or we don't think that a lot of people think has control over the system, and they were trying to unwind QE, and while doing that, they did not realize that that would dry up liquidity in these repo markets and cause a crunch where they would have to step in again as lenders of last resort. And this is actually something I'm very curious to get your uh, your thoughts on. This sort of so. What is the Fed's original mandate? It is to step in and be the lender of last resort. And I always thought the lender of last resort to banks specifically. I didn't know they could be the lender of last resorts to hedge funds looking to margin trade. Um, when did these hedge funds start getting access to this Fed window? 
Well, and, and you know, honestly, I think that it would be very interesting to to see, you know, if, if the Fed would just publish for every uh, repo auction that they do, just, you know, we don't need to audit the Fed, just, just tell us, you know, who are the counterparties on the other side? Um, because that would, that would provide a lot of insight. And, and, you know, to tell you the truth, I'm not um, 100% certain whether certain hedge funds have direct, direct access or whether um, there are players in that market that, that act as intermediaries, such that, you know, whether a bank is participating in the repo and then lending those monies on to hedge funds, um, because what, what it, it could be the case is, and this is, you know, it's the idea that, you know, if you owe the bank $100, it's your problem. But if you, if you owe the bank $100 million, it's the bank's problem, where the banks are ultimately counterparties to these hedge funds that are, that are massively levered. And so um, I don't know enough to, to say finitely whether, you know, hedge funds are participating directly in, in these repo auctions. But, you know, it does make sense when you understand the leverage profile, a lot of the, these large relative value hedge funds that they are, you know, part of the, um, the large demand that could have caused such a dramatic rise in repo rates overnight. All right. So let's, let's dive into that topic, the leverage. How does, how does leverage play into all this and how does it affect everything? Well, so, you know, when you, when you think about the context of the, and, and there's many ways to think about leverage, but when we're thinking about, you know, financial liabilities and the, the dollars that can pay for those financial liabilities. You know, if, if there's today you know, 75 trillion, you know, just, just bringing it back up, you know, not necessarily to the actual repo operations and the leverage profile, of potentially the counterparties that are causing the spikes in repo, but um, talking to a system wide perspective, there's approximately 75 trillion of debt in the system and the banks at least as of September 2019, which has changed, which we'll talk about, um, was only 1.6 trillion. Um, and so in that context, when you think about it at the highest level and take a step back and just look at the, look at the field through those lens, that's for every dollar that actually exists on, on the left side of the bank's balance sheets today, there were $47 worth of debt. And then another way to think about that is for every dollar that exists, it's been lent out 47 times. And that um, in that construct, and, and if I have this visualization of the, of the US financial system and especially the overnight markets where essentially every dollar that can be lent out is wrung out, you know, like a wet rag trying to find every dollar that can potentially go to, to satisfy the demand on, on a short-term basis. That, um, Thinking about the imbalance from that construct, it, it's less relevant as to um, you know who or what, but you know recognizing that a liquidity crisis and somebody that you know whether it's in the overnight markets or in the 30-day markets or in the 60-day markets, anyone that's massively levered in funding their operations on a on a short-term basis, their problem can't be solved by a 15-day repo facility. Um, and, and I think the ultimate consequence of that is that um, essentially we will see likely very soon Operation Twist 2.0. And so even if today the Fed is maintaining that this is not QE because 
for not buying duration, they are increasing the size of their balance sheet, they're increasing liquidity in the system, and it will come. They will, in order to, to solve, the, you know, on a temporary basis, these acute needs, they will have to transition the, the duration profile of, of what they're doing through these 15-day and 30-day repo or even overnight repo auctions and additional liquidity that they're providing to the system to actually make sure that the market knows that those reserves will be there, not just for one day or 15 days or 30 days, but for two years, three years, 30 years. Um, so I think what we'll see from here is kind of solving that immediate liquidity crisis and the fact that the system is massively too levered by ultimately providing more duration in terms of liquidity that they're providing. So a lot of the same back to back to QE, it seems. And so let's fo- like, so it seems like the Fed doesn't know what it was doing. Like you've been saying, they walked into a buzzsaw they created. Like, is there f- any fixing this going forward? So let's talk about the fact that the Fed didn't see this coming. And I know we don't want to talk about specific players, but I think just for the fact that this com for the uh, benefit of this conversation, let's talk about JP Morgan's balance sheet. Uh, restructuring? Did they see something coming and try to get out of the way first, do you think? Yeah, and I think, so to provide the background on that, this is something, you know, I haven't been uh, been able to be as quite as much of a, as a Fed whisperer and tracking the Fed as I, as I was, you know, a few years ago. But in terms of some of the reports that I read that, that, that do seem to, to make sense is that, you know, over the course of 2000, maybe late 2018, but but certainly in 2019, that JP Morgan, and correct me if I'm wrong on the numbers, they moved, say, 400 billion of what were formerly reserves into um, longer term treasuries, not necessarily, you know, saying 30 year treasuries, but they, they essentially moved those reserves from being cash in their balance sheet into, uh, into, into treasury coupon bonds. And you know, kind of recognizing that J.P. Morgan, um, I believe it's the largest bank in, in the United States, um, was a large funding mechanism to those repo markets. That you know, as they are essentially selling reserves for coupon bonds, those reserves are going to to other you know, essentially not necessarily directly to other banks in the system, but when they're transferring out of that market, they're leaving a void and the counterparties that they're transacting with may not be participating in the same market and that that likely, or at least it's a, it's an explanation that makes sense as to what created this massive imbalance. And so whether, you know, and there's also theories that they understood what would happen and that they were moving into, uh, into treasury coupons as essentially a, a front running of, of Fed's, you know, future QE4 or the formal QE4 such that um, that if they were reducing the amount of reserves that they held and ultimately the excess reserves and it was going to, you know, whether they, you know, were intending to do it or not, I I don't think that that anyone has has suggested that necessarily, that they weren't intending to cause something to happen like what happened in September, but that the ultimate consequence of draining liquidity out of that market would be that there would be a spike in those uh, overnight repo markets and that eventually or you know whether it was as soon as the fed had to come in or whether it was in 2020 that the fed would ultimately come in 
and have to start rebuying treasuries and do a formal QE process. And when they were doing that, they would essentially be buying JP Morgan's treasury notes back at a higher price. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And it wouldn't surprise me at all. Jamie Dimon has proven to be a very, uh, very cold capitalist. And, and if you, I mean, many people have been saying the writing is on the wall, is on the wall. The Fed's backed in the corner. They're going to have to uh, revert to QE one day. And it would make sense if J, Jamie Dimon cares about his long-term business prospects that he would try to move first. And that's, it, it seems to me just observationally that it, it seems like a get out first type move and sort of front run, um, like you described. And it's pretty crazy. It's happening on the scale that it is. So where do we go from here? Like is, how long does this go on? Like how does this, are we just going to have to print money forever? Is mon, uh, modern monetary theory, is it going to win out? Is that the future? Modern monetary theory. I think we talked about this last time, but, um, and it will always get some pushback, but it's not, a, it's not a theory, right? Like it's, it's some, um, bastardization of, of two bastardized theories that people have kind of combined into one in the last six to 12 months or maybe two years to, to explain away why the um, federal government can run $1.2 trillion deficits into perpetuity, which I think anybody that um, has any sense or reason understands that uh, that game can't go on forever. But, um, you know, I, I, I do think and again, it's, it's helpful to look at history and just to put the context as to, because we've talked a lot about um, what happened in September. And we talked about the fact that how phenomenal it was that the Fed came, came in so quickly. Can you hear me? Yeah, you, you just uh, you cut out there for, for a second, but you're good. Okay. Um, but when you think about, you know, so one of the things that uh, Chairman Powell um, has received a lot of criticism for, for is that he said this is not QE, this is nothing like QE. And that when you look at what's happened from September when the repo market broke to today, um, in terms of the overall size of the Fed's balance sheet or the, the amount of reserves that the Fed is supplying, just looking today or last week as of September, the, the balance sheet is larger by $320 billion. So. It and it grew at its fastest pace in like the last 10 years too, correct? Yeah, so... Um, the rate of growth was faster than at any point through, throughout QE, I believe. Except for, well, technically that may be true, but if you go back to the actual, you know, Lehman and in the aftermath of the Lehman crisis, so in the, in the, if we look at least, so there have been three months since the repo market broke in September and the feds increased the size of his balance sheet by 320 billion in the three months after Lehman, the, the fed increased its balance sheet by 1.3 trillion. So we, we weren't necessarily at, at, Le at, at Lehman levels, but that also may not have yet formally been QE1. Um, that, that, that was stealth QE1 that, that happened in the background. Um, but then QE2 for the first three months of QE2, the Fed increased the size of its balance sheet by 170 billion. And the first three months of QE3, they increased the size of the balance sheet by 145 billion. So what they've done, you know, and, and seemingly, you know, 
you know, or not seemingly, but as a matter of fact, have called it not QE. They've increased the size of their balance sheet by, you know, far more than they did, you know, in the subsequent months after the beginning of QE2 and QE3. Um, so I think that, you know, if it, if it looks and looks and quacks like, you know, looks, quacks, walks like a duck, it is a duck. Um, and, you know, regardless of, of, of definitions, what will happen from here is that this amount of liquidity will grow. The Fed's already signaled that to, to solve for um, what, what many have projected to be a, um, a, a coming liquidity crisis that, that will happen around year end. So I don't know in terms of the, the net amount, but I, but I believe it's an incremental $350 billion that they're planning to make available between now and the end of the year um, on top of what they've already increased. Um, in terms of the size of their balance sheet, in terms of the liquidity that they've added to the system. Um, and then ultimately what happens from there is that that is turned into a formal QE4 and, and that the assets that have short duration today that they're buying are transitioned into to longer duration. And so, um, you know, not only can, can this not go on forever, um, but it's also important to recognize that because of the dynamics in the credit system and because, you know, in terms of those metrics that, that I've mentioned both last time we spoke, but then also earlier today about just that thinking 75 trillion of debt, you know, as of three months ago, one, approximately 1.6 trillion of cash on the bank's balance sheets. Today, it's just under, you know, just right around 2 trillion, that because of that dynamic, it is a moral certainty that more liquidity has to be added to the system. Um, you know, how much, you know, is anybody's guess, um, and and how quickly? You know, really depends on the market. But but I think the things that that can't be questioned are these ideas. There's two sides of the equation. One is, and, and you know, the market has seemingly been lulled to sleep by the Fed and, and its operations. But it's that idea that if the Fed knew that this was going to happen, they never would have decrease the size of their balance sheet and drain liquidity as as fast as they did. And I think that makes sense to a, a common person when they just take a step back and recognize how much money $50 billion a month is and how much money $700 billion is in aggregate. And if each one of those dollars is levered, you know, um, going into the, you know, in, into the unwind, that ratio is 30 to one in terms of debt to dollars, that when they're reducing you know, 70, 700 billion of, of liquidity that's impacting 30 to one in terms of how tight credit becomes. And this just happened in terms of the repo market to be the, the market that broke first, but it likely won't be the last. Yeah. So a little decrease in the balance sheet has uh, undue effects on, on the rest of the market. Yes. Um, and, and then on, on the other side of the equation, it is the, the market saying, oh, well, you know, kind of ignoring the fact that the Fed walked into a buzzsaw and didn't understand it. And then saying, oh, well, hey, don't worry, guys, you know, show's not over. Let's keep buying equities because the Fed is in control. And, um, you know, I don't know if I would equate um, Chairman Powell's comment about how this is not QE, but I would I would just you know bring back up the uh, Jacques Claude Juncker's 
statement about when it gets serious, you have to lie. Um, it is what I think that they're doing now. Yeah. Well, that's what was crazy about this week is that I was astonished that the BIS came out and tried to identify somebody like in the, even acknowledge the problem. Um, like, and again, like, and what I'm trying to hone in. So like going back to, you mentioned it, there's a lot to worry about the end of year fund. Like a lot of people think these next couple of weeks are very crucial um, for the next, uh, for the next, for going forward with how policy will uh, be established. Like why is this end of the year, um, these next few weeks so important in particular with the funding and stuff like that? Why are people freaking out about uh, the end of the year funding switch? Yeah, and, and you know, full disclosure in terms of the mechanics of this, this is a this is an aspect that I'm less less well read on. Um, you you should probably get someone like our, our friend Brooks Dudley on to, to he can he can probably dive in or Nick Batia. I'm trying to Brooks Brooks get the corporate shackles off your hands. Come on the pod. Yeah, work this through compliance, Brooks. Come on, we we, we need it. Um, but. Uh, the you know what seemingly happens at the end of each quarter and then uh, in a in a more uh, more material way at the end of the year is that there are certain um, tests that are you know whether it's the, whether it's the Fed that look at the capital ratios of the banks and assess the leverage and then you know require certain remedial actions to be taken. And you know, w- without being an expert in, in you know kind of regulatory calcs and and how the the window dressing actually um, impacts the banks on a go forward basis, I do think that kind of at a, at a high level, a way to think about it is that rules were put in place to and, and whether they should be or, or or shouldn't you know in a world where you don't have bailouts, it would just be hey, let certain banks you know, be more reckless, other banks, you know, be more conservative and the banks that, that, that are more reckless would just fail and the market would, would solve the problem. But in our current construct, there are, there are rules in place to, to measure leverage and, and to address leverage and, and, and in an attempt to prevent excess leverage being taken from banks. And so what essentially happens at the end of quarters and at the end of years is that banks perform some window dressing to reduce their leverage ratios. How do they do that? They borrow reserves um, on, a, on an overnight basis or on a short-term basis to make their balance sheets you know, look um, healthier or um, less levered. And, and it's pretty remarkable to think about that in the context of what the Fed is now doing. They're essentially saying, okay, these rules are in place to, um, to, to prevent excessive leverage but we know that the banks all do it. And that at the end of the quarter, when it comes to their reporting and their testing, they just borrow some dollars on repo, move other assets off their books, get their leverage stats good, and then unwind that at the end of the year. That's a problem because it creates a massive amount of demand for, for dollars to do that window dressing towards the end of quarters and the end of years. And so we're going to create these rules um, to have certain things in place. And then we're going to provide this massive repo facility to the banks to, to actually facilitate the uh, the window dressing. So we're going to set the rules, and then we're going to 
provide the liquidity to allow this circumvention of the rules. It's pure insanity, man. And we actually had the one of the architects of the repo market um, come out this week, and, and he's predicting a crash within the next few days. Um, what the hell is his name? Pozar? Zoltan, Zoltan Pozar, um, one of the architects of the repo. It's unclear whether or not uh, the Fed read that report and then, you know, again, within 24 hours, signaled to the market that they were providing, you know, hundreds of billions of additional liquidity to the repo markets, um, whether they were you know, planning to do that all along or whether, you know, they were doing their own analysis and looking at this problem and saying, okay, we, we need to, to front run a, a, a you know, significant liquidity problem, you know, on top of what's already happened in the repo markets to prevent, you know, another, because I think it happened just last year where the, where the equity market started to crash uh, towards year end, because, you know, again, you know, what starts in the repo markets, and especially if it is in fact, you know, being caused by over levered hedge funds could very easily um, in, in really a knock on effect bleed into to other markets as well. So seems like the Fed's attempting to, to front run those risks that, um, that that former Fed analyst was was raising, you know, last week or the week before in his piece research. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, how do I want to phrase this? It's almost like the Fed is taking the, the N64 cartridges out, blowing on it when, it when it freezes and putting it back in. Like, is this, like, how many times can they blow on it, put it back in, turn it on? before it just never turns on again. Like you're talking about the repo markets breaking, like will they ever break beyond repair? I, I mean, if the, if the fed, so, yeah, that's a, that's a really obviously difficult question to answer. I think that from a practical perspective, um, yeah, the fed can put liquidity into the system. They can't, make it go where it needs to be on a sustained basis. Um, and if you, and whoever the, the problem children may be in terms of the most over levered and the most likely insolvent, um, you know, the only way to solve their problems are, are two ways. One, allow pain to be felt um, and, and restructure, um, you know, whether it's the the composition of a portfolio and taking down, you know, gross exposure or whether, you know, whether it be a, a mortgage REIT that's financing their, their uh, carry trade on a 30 day or 60 day term. The only way to solve those problems are twofold. One, allowing, you know, restructuring or two, providing more liquidity, but still even then, regardless of how much liquidity the Fed puts in the system, they can't directly provide that term financing to these these most over levered counterparties, and so that's where you know the if you're thinking about the you know whether it's the excess reserves or the cash in the back bank's balance sheets on a on an aggregate basis, um, the, the the plumbing is so jammed up that no one you know no one wants to be the counterparty directly to um, those most troubled players, and you know this is you know there there's a something that at least I've been trying to formulate around um, this idea of, okay, if we have a financial system that is you know, massively levered and that the only way to sh solve the short-term problem is to 
provide additional liquidity in the system. And I'm not saying that in the context, I don't think it's a solution, um, but it is a way to kick the can down the road, at least for the Fed, that um, you can't solve a debt problem by inducing more debt. And that's all, that's all really QE can possibly do. Um, and that when we recognize that the Fed has a price stability mandate and a, um, and a full employment mandate because the, the credit system is so large and because there are so few dollars in the system relative to that, that the credit system is the marginal price setter and such that if that system was ever allowed to start to unwind, it would unwind in a, in a very dislocated way and it would it would essentially collapse on itself. And so the Fed is, is stuck in this catch-22 where uh, you know, the only way that they can kick the can down the road is providing more liquidity, but ultimately at the end of the day, their solution to the problem is I've got a debt problem and I, you know, the, the, the patient is dying, um, let me give it more debt. And, and the way that that happens is essentially they provide liquidity into the system in terms of base money and then eventually uh, they stabilize asset prices, they allow those asset prices to sustain otherwise unsustainable amounts of debt and then eventually the, the banks begin to, to lend again and allow the credit system to expand and the system you know, continues to plod along slowly. You know, one day that all comes crashing down. When? I don't, you know, I try not to lose sleep about it or, or think about it too much because it's impossible to predict. And it's, you know, at least in terms of, I think, how both of us are trying to, to, to be very, very, very small parts of that solution is doing work in and around Bitcoin because I, you know, do think that that's ultimately the solution. I do as well. I do as well. That is why I work on Bitcoin. That is why I left the financial world. Are we still in the financial world, maybe? Um, I left the traditional financial world for Bitcoin. Um, things are hairy out there, freaks. And luckily, we have people like Parker out there doing the, the hard homework to sort of uh, understand what's going on and explain this to us. Parker, I want to thank you for taking 45 minutes out of your, your Saturday, out of that Taproot workshop to, uh, to help explain all this to us. Yeah, well, while these guys back here are doing the real work, the, the real grunt work to, to build this rocket ship for us, uh, we can at least come in here and, and yak about how uh, clownish the, the the Fed is and the Fed looks, and and uh, help educate people as to I think ultimately you know where we go, and and you know it's my expectation that increasingly people will that QE will become a trigger term um, to to explain to people or to to allow people to um, understand why Bitcoin works and why it will increasingly become intuitive for people. Yes. Are there any final thoughts on the subject that you want to get off your chest before we wrap up here? No, I think we should just uh, sit and wait, uh, enjoy the ride, and then, you know, it would be, it would, it would be funny if it wasn't so serious. Um, be, because uh, I think anybody should be concerned when, when something happens in September and then, you know, three months later, 320 billion are just created out of thin air. You know, I would really like to, to one day see what a cash flow statement of the Federal Reserve looks like, not necessarily one of those people that cameras for auditing the Fed, but uh, maybe we should uh, do a quarterly check-in to, to see, you know, what, you know, we've talked about what's happened in the last three months, but I expect a lot more of this in the next three months. So 
maybe we can we can sit down in, in March and, and talk about uh, how much the Fed has uh, bungled the, the situation from here to there. Yes. I would like to see some of those cash flow statements too. And I believe uh, 2020 will be having a lot of check-ins with you, Parker. Um, Absolutely. Thank you for this particular check-in. That's all we got this week, freaks. Peace and love. Take care.